morning, Southbridge. It is great to be together. It is exciting, isn't it, to be together and, and just thinking about if you're here at the movie theater right now, there's going to be a day in our church's life where you're going to go, remember back at the movie theater? Remember what that was like? And you're here during these still early days, even though we've grown and God's been doing amazing stuff since day one. You're here at the, at the beginning. And even if you're on the setup team or the teardown team, there might be a day where you actually look back and say, do you remember that? Like in a good way. And so uh, it's exciting to be together today. Um, God's been changing lives since day one. You just saw a small glimpse of it. We had a lady trust Christ last week at the end of a service, and so we're excited about that. We had somebody trust Christ at the Southbridge service that we did this weekend, over 200 volunteers that were out serving around our city. And uh, it's exciting stuff to be a part of. And one of the things that's happening, you got a first glimpse of the facility that we're planning on building. If you didn't know, we bought a piece of property back in May over on Glenwood Avenue, and we purchased that property, and, and now we're at a place where we're doing a bunch of work behind the scenes, and it's really been years coming where there's been uh, just excitement and readiness uh, to be able to move into uh, a building at this point, but uh, now you get to be a part of it, and you get to be a part of those next steps, and uh, it's going to mean that we're going to need to raise some finances. Um, we're going to be doing, we're starting a series today called Whatever It Takes. It's an initiative, a campaign series that we're going to do for the next five weeks. We're going to have a commitment Sunday on November 4th, and so we're going to be talking about some of those things in the days ahead. We'll talk more about that facility you saw. That was really just a first glimpse. Um, we believe that auditorium is going to seat somewhere between 750 and 1,000 people, and so in one day, uh, between children and adults there, we're doing three services, would be our plan, uh, that we'll be able to have over 3,000 people in one day that we'll get to be able to expose to the gospel and equip to go out into the city to reach more people. I also believe that's going to be a hub to reach other places around this city. You didn't even get to see the, the children's space, about 10,000 square foot of modular children's space. It'll be our own children's space. And so we'll get to clean the gum up off the floor before we get there. It'll be exciting uh, to be able to do those things. And uh, very exciting days ahead. And uh, we're glad that each one of you are, are here with us today. And I'm going to pray for us. We're going to jump into the message this morning as we start this series. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for just the opportunity to open your word. Uh, for the opportunity to gather together, that we've got the freedoms we have in this country, that we can openly talk about these things, and Father, that we can openly talk about you. And I pray we would do it in an accurate way. I pray that we would do it in a way that is honoring and glorifying to you. And I pray that as a result, we would know you more and better at the end of our time together. I pray for each one of us that are already followers of yours, that you would grab our hearts and make us love you more deeply and make us love our world the way that you do. And I pray for those that are yet to know you as Savior, that today would be the day of salvation, that today would be the day they would realize how much you love them and what you've done to reach them. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, last week, as we began the service, I said something very controversial, and it's caused an uproar kind of in our church. In some regards, at least many of you have let me know what you think about what I said. I made a controversial statement. For those of you who don't know what statement I'm referring to, Last week, I shared with the church as a whole publicly that my wife and I have lived here for about six years now, and we're opening our recruitment to, another, to whatever college football team or basketball team or whatever it is in our city that God would lead us to, right? And many of you have tried to persuade that and help that happen. So after I made this controversial statement, I've been contacted via Twitter, via Facebook, via email from every university that you all love here in this town. I've had somebody email me just a simple email. It says, go Duke. <laughs> and I say, go ahead. Go wherever you're going to go. It's great. And it's head on out. And it's wonderful. I've had people send me uh, an email from an NC State fan that actually had five points. Yeah, they're real excited today, right? Five points from an NC State fan of why I should root for NC State. And they even had stuff about my family. So it was five points, explanations. I could have taken it up here and preached it if I was preaching on NC State today. This email that I received. I had one person put on my Facebook page from UNC. And so you can go look at it if you want to go look at my Facebook page. Reminder, that person does know Jesus. They're a brother in the Lord, so be kind to them if you're an NC State fan. 
His statement to me of recruiting was simply this. Choose culture over agriculture. That's what he said. That's what he, I'm, just, that, I'm not saying it. That's what he said. Okay, so you can go look, and you can interact over that as you would like. I had a student that goes to our church from Meredith College, because I said that I was going to open my recruitment to UNC, NC State, and Meredith, and she wrote me an email that just said, just a reminder, our football team is still undefeated. <laughs> Probably will remain that way until they get a football team. That's the, where they're at. And then I had a guy from NC State who sent me a picture of, he's an NC State fan, of his desk. But notice he's got some stuff in the bank. He's still dealing with some past, right? He's got things going on there. got Jesus stuff mixed in with uh, all that stuff. A little propaganda has been thrown at me. I had a guy come up to me at Southbridge Surf's kickoff on Friday night. He had a polo shirt on that uh, said NC State on the logo on the side. And he walked up, and he's just real serious, and he kind of leans in. And I felt like a recruit, like I was not a highly recruited person. In fact, I got zero recruitment as an athlete uh, coming out of high school. And he, he leaned in. It must have been what it was like. He said, I just want to remind you that I love your children at Bridge Kids every week. And he kind of put his logo forward as, as he said it, <laughs> manipulated there. I will say that I did get invitations from three different families to come to the NC State-Florida State football game last night. That's right. It was too late for me, so I didn't get to go. Pretty exciting stuff, though, for those of you who didn't see that game. Uh, I didn't get any invitations from UNC fans, which was interesting because I thought they were into giving stuff away for free, but they didn't. So um, they just, I'm just saying, if you wanted to go, I thought I had NC State. NC State's the one that taught me that. I had people say UNC stands for cheaters is what I was told. I say love the university, hate the sin. Okay, that's what you should go with and some of that stuff. There's, there's this recruitment going out there that's happening now in our church, and I will say thank you. It's been very enjoyable for me. I'm still undecided. Somebody told me after this, the first service, how can you be undecided? after last night's game like what's like there's something wrong with me that i haven't picked a team at this moment because they're so in love with their team and last week we talked about how we naturally talk about the things that we love isn't that true and it doesn't matter whether it's your team or whether it's your kids or whether it's science or whether it's food or whatever it is that you love you naturally talk about what you love and then the question became so do we talk about jesus because we say that we love him with all of our heart soul mind and strength do you ever talk about jesus and, and do you love other people? And last week we talked about our one, and that we would, and as you see in this t-shirt, that we pray for our one, and love our one, and serve our one, and share with our one. And so did you talk to your one this week? Do you pray for your one this week? Because we naturally talk about what we love. But this week I want to take it in a slightly different angle, and continue to talk about love, and the things that we love. But do you ever notice the crazy things that we'll do because of love? Just on the, on the spectrum of sports still, if you watched the Florida State-NC State game last night, did anybody watch that game? Okay, a couple people. Do you see what people do at those games? I have cultural questions before I commit to anything, okay? People do crazy stuff. I saw a guy that is, I believe he's a college student, so he's in like higher education, right? He had a mullet wig on, and he was wearing red and white overalls, and he's dancing around the whole time. What is that? Like, what was happening there? Have you seen people paint their bodies for their team? It's not just NC State. Cameron Crazies do it. The UNCers do it. All kinds of people do it. There's, yeah, the cameras are just quiet. They've got all kinds of stuff that, that people do for their team. Grown men standing for long periods of time with their hands in this motion, channeling like energy towards the field, like somehow this is helping, doing this thing. What is that? We do crazy stuff out of love, don't we? It's not just for sports. We do it romantically. Some of you men would be embarrassed to come up here and tell me all the things you did to woo your wife or to woo your girlfriend, to get her to love you, the things you said, the songs you listened to, the movies you pretended you liked, all that stuff. We do crazy stuff. We would do anything, but one thing, right? We'll do anything, meatloaf, except we won't do... Yeah, I won't sing for you, but we'll do lots of stuff for love. I read this week uh, multiple stories of parents and the sacrifices they make for their children. 
Sometimes for medical rescue, sometimes rescue, you know, car type stuff that's happened, and people will put their own lives in risk for their children. I saw one guy, this story, some of you have heard before, Aaron Ralston, a guy that was out hiking, and his arm got caught in a boulder, and he used a multi-tool. It's been nicer than my multi-tool, by the way, but he cut his arm off with it. You say, how's that a love story? Well, he loved his life more than he loved his arm. He'd do whatever it takes to save his own life. But the greatest example of a crazy, strange, weird, unexplainable kind of love, somebody that do something crazy for love, is Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world, he didn't put a shield of protection around his son, he gave his son. He gave his son for us, because he loved us. That whoever believes in him would have everlasting life. He did whatever it took to reach us. And then while we were yet sinners, the Bible says, that Christ died for us. There was nothing lovely about us, but he loved us, and he did whatever it took, including giving his own life, so that you and I could have a relationship with him. And the gist of this series is this. He did whatever it takes to reach us. Will we do whatever it takes to reach those he died for that are yet to know him? Because that's our mission. That's why we're here. And we're asking ourselves, well, we do whatever it takes. Let's put it into perspective. Many of us, if we're really honest, won't go to the level of inconvenience to share Jesus with someone. That it's out of our way, that it costs us our time, that they might think about us. Some of those types of things are the hindrances that stop us. And the question I have to ask you, especially if you were here and heard last week's message, are you sure you're a Christian? Because that's why you exist. That's why you're here. Remember that quote I gave you from John MacArthur? Or John MacArthur, a conservative Bible teacher, loves the church, loves the word. He says this about the church. He says, if the church's sole purpose for existing were that we could kind of come together and have fellowship, get a kumbaya time together, then he'd take us right to heaven when we trust Christ. Because there's no loneliness there. There's no sin there. Everything's perfect there. We have perfect fellowship there. If the sole purpose were for us to, to gather together and sing praises to God, as awesome as our worship team is and all that stuff, it's going to be perfect in heaven. It's going to be way better than what it is here. This is just a glimpse if you come to, to church just to hear Bible teaching, <laughs> me teach the Bible, Jesus is going to be there. And we're going to understand perfectly. He says there's one reason. One reason why we're still here. And it's the same reason why Jesus came. It's to seek and save the lost. Luke chapter 19, verse 10. And so the question for us as followers of Jesus, if you're yet to trust Jesus as your Savior, I'm not even talking to you today. You need to trust Jesus. But if you're a follower of Jesus... Will you do whatever it takes to seek and save the lost? If you have your Bible, it's going to be the Gospel of John at the very end. It's the fourth Gospel in the, in the New Testament. If you go Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and it's at the very end. John chapter 20. And we're going to start reading in verse 19. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me. John chapter 20, starting in verse 19. And as you turn there, it's really a similar context to what we talked about last week. We were in Matthew chapter 28, and we talked about the Great Commission, verses 16 through 20. And remember, at that point, Jesus had died. His guys were still alive. And they're on earth, and they don't know what to do. And they're wondering what God's plan is for their life. Well, back up about 30 days, and that's where they're at in John chapter 20. Try and imagine again for a moment with me what it was like to be one of the disciples, one of these 11 guys that are left. You left everything to follow Jesus. Like, wrap your mind around that for a minute. You walked away from your house. You left your bank account. You left your spouse. You left your kids. You left your career. You left everything to follow Jesus. You're following him for about three years. Good times, bad times. You see some amazing things happen. He even does some stuff through you. It's great. You laugh together. You cry together. You share meals together. You sleep out under the stars together. What a great bond with Jesus and those 11 other guys you're with. Then one of your best friends betrays him, commits suicide. That'll mess you up. And the guy that you left everything to follow is dead. 
Think about that for a minute. Now what are you thinking? How do I get my job back? I got to go back to my family. How do I? And after three days of going through those thoughts and that depression, you hear word that he's raised from the dead, that his tomb is empty. And if you've been to Easter church before, you know that's like exciting. The tomb is empty. He is risen. That's exciting. But try to imagine being one of those guys. And the reality of it happening. Okay, the tomb's empty. Big deal. Who took the body? People just raised from the dead. Luke tells us that even after Jesus appeared, they thought it was too good to be true. So they're still doubting. They're still in this depressing, the darkest moment of their life. They're afraid that someone's going to come and kill them because they killed Jesus. Look what John tells us. John chapter 20 and verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, it's been three days since Jesus died, it's a Sunday now, it's the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples, they were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. And then he gives his commission. This is the great commission from the Gospel of John. This is the way that John says the same thing that we looked at last week. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. I'm sending you out there. You're hunkered down in a room. Look at verse 19. They're afraid of the Jews. It's nighttime. They're locking their doors. They're afraid of what's going to happen to them. They killed Jesus. What are they going to do to us? We're his followers. We're the closest guy. Jesus appears to them and says, Listen, you're supposed to be out there. You're supposed to be out there with those people because... You're not supposed to be just thinking about you. Newsflash, our lives are not about us. And he's telling his disciples that. I'm sent, just as the Father sent me, and he didn't send me here because it'd be fun to come and die. He didn't send me here so I could feel like what it was like to be mocked and beaten and died, experience all the temptations you experience and then not sin. No, he sent me here for you. And he says to them, I'm sending you out for them. And that's going to mean a change of mentality for these disciples. And for us, if we're going to reach our city for Jesus, if we're going to reach our neighbor for Jesus, if we're going to reach our one for Jesus, for 99% of us, it's going to mean a change in mentality. That's our first point today. Whatever it takes mentality takes a change in mentality for most of us. If you think about it for the disciples, they're thinking about their needs. They're doing what comes natural. They're doing what... 99% of us would do if we were in their situation and Jesus died, we're trying to figure this out. They're probably having a meeting trying to decide whether this really happened because up to this point, the only one that's probably seen him is Peter. The only one that believes he's raised from the dead is Peter and John. And they've got these other disciples that are in there. One commentator I read said they're probably gathering together because they're still in Jerusalem. It's not even their city. Trying to figure out how are we going to get back to Galilee without causing a stir, without people noticing us. And we know they're locked up for fear of the Jews and Jesus is saying, you go out there. You go with them. It's going to take a change of mentality for them. And it's going to take a change of mentality for us. How does that happen? Well, let me illustrate. I remember one time I was at a conference, a pastor's conference, and uh, one of the pastors that was speaking stood up, named Craig Rochelle, and as he stood up to start to speak to us, he asked a question that really got my attention. The question was, if I asked you to come up with $100,000 by the end of the week, how many of you could do that? <laughs> and I'll ask you the same question. If I asked you to come up with $100,000, I'm very interested in this since we're building a building. If I asked you to come up with $100,000 by the end of the week, how many of you could do that? Now, let's see, the hands? Hands, anyone? I, ooh, you moved a little bit. I count that. You know, rub your nose. I got, I got that. Unless you're really rich, that's not an easy task, is it? So let me change the scenario for you. I want you to get a picture in your mind. Picture someone that you love desperately, deeply, and passionately. 
Think of the person that you love, maybe the most, but not to make it a competition. Maybe there's a bunch of people you love a lot. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe a son or daughter. Maybe it's a mom or dad. Think of someone that you love. Okay, you got your person, your mind? When I, when I was thinking about this this week, one of my daughters popped into my mind, and, and I thought about her. Now imagine the scenario is this. The doctor tells that person, they're getting sick. And not sick, like throw up sick, like terminally ill. And they've only got 30 days to live. And there is no chance, okay, no chance that they're going to live beyond 30 days. Unless they get a shot. But the medication for that shot is very scarce. And so therefore it's very expensive. How much does it cost? $100,000. And here's the thing. Because they only have a month to live, if they don't get the shot by the end of this week, they will die. Now what do you think about coming up with $100,000 by the end of the week? It doesn't matter, does it? You'll do it, right? Money is no object. You'll sell the house, you'll refinance something, you'll commit to doing something, you'll promise that forever you'll, you'll do whatever it takes to come up with $100,000 now. And that's just to save someone's life here on earth. What we're talking about is way bigger than that. We're talking about people spending eternity separated from God, forever and ever and ever separated from God in constant torment and hell. That's worse than dying here on earth. And that's our role. That's why we're here, to seek and save the lost. But for most of us to actually care about people at that level, God's going to have to do something in our hearts for us to have a whatever-it-takes mentality. It will take a change in mentality. It did for the disciples. You think about where they're at. They're thinking about their needs, their protection, their safety. You don't think one of them might think to themselves, well, Jesus died, we should probably carry on his ministry now. No! They're doing what's natural. They're doing what most of us would do. They're thinking about themselves. And so they hunker down in this room. What kind of conversation do you think is happening this night? It's an evening. The doors are locked. I picture that there's furniture stacked all up against the door. You know, It's like no one's coming in. That we got this thing locked down, it's shut down. And one commentator I said is thinking about how they can get out of town. Some of them are probably hearing the stories, the reports of people that have seen Jesus. But you know what they might be talking about? You remember what they did to Jesus, right? He didn't do anything wrong. They arrested him. They flogged him for sport. And then they got a bloodthirsty crowd to chant, crucify him, even though he committed no crime. What do you think they're going to do to us, guys? And it says here, they're afraid of the Jews. And they're locked in this room and it's nighttime. Have you ever been locked up in your house, your apartment, your dorm room? At night, and maybe your roommate's out of town or your spouse is gone or whatever reason, you're, you're home alone that night and you hear that noise, right? Like, what in the world is that noise? Do you know what pops in my mind? Axe murderer. <laughs> I'm an extremist, all right? I go right to, and I also go to axe murderer. It's not just murderer. Like, that wouldn't be bad enough. Like, a gun murderer or a knife murderer. It's axe murderer. Like, they're out there. And you hear, what do you do? You go check it out, right? No! Have you ever seen a horror movie? Like before Jesus. Like, you ever see a horror movie? That's how you get killed. You know what you're supposed to do? Pull the covers over your head, close your eyes, hope you fall asleep, and you wake up and everything's fine in the morning. You hide. That's where the disciples are at. They're hiding. They're locked down. They're hoping this, the whole thing will just blow over. Bad news is, the tomb is empty. Now everybody's talking about this stuff. They don't know what happened. For all they know, the Jews came and took the body. They're going to drag the corpse through the street and humiliate them more. 
That's how bloodthirsty they seem. And so as they're in this room, they're hunkered down, they're afraid, they hear every noise. They hear everybody walking up the steps. Only they don't hear a thing, and then, boop, there's Jesus. Look at the message. And then Jesus stood among them. If you weren't scared before, guess what? You're scared now. One, he's supposed to be dead. Two, how do you get through all the furniture? Like, what, what happened here? And look at what Jesus says to them. Peace be with you. Interesting that he would say that. It's a common greeting, Hebrew shalom. But it's not just that Jesus is saying, hey guys, what's up? Hello, good afternoon, good evening, good morning. Now, it's two times in these three verses we see Jesus say, look back down on verse 21, peace be with you. He's talking about his peace that he gives to them. In the midst of their situation, it's probably their darkest hour of their life. The hardest trial they've ever been through. The greatest emotional suffering they've ever experienced. One of their friends committed suicide, betrayed their master. Their master died. And then Jesus says, peace. Why? Because that was what they needed at that moment. Peace. It's in the midst of that suffering. It's like putting a diamond on a black cloth. That peace just glows. All their anxiety, all their stress, all the problems that are happening at that moment. And Jesus says, peace. What do you think goes through their mind? I believe what they probably think about is the last conversation they had with Jesus. It's recorded in John chapter 13 through 17. Many people call it the upper room discourse, the upper room conversation. It's a talk, the last conversation that he has with them. He washes their feet, he has a meal with them, and he shares some very important words with them. And do you know what he tells them there? I give you peace. My peace I leave with you. They didn't even understand that he was leaving. Where are you going? Can we go? They, remember that they asked all these dumb questions. He says, my peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. But look at that last phrase. I do not give as the world gives. Why? How does the world give? Does the world give and take away? Is that what he's saying? They're like, you know, snatch it away? Type? No, that's not what he's saying. The world doesn't even understand the kind of peace that Jesus is talking about here. Because if you think about what people talk about that don't know Jesus when they're talking about peace, what do they mean? If I say define peace, you just go out random streets and walk up to people and say, what do you think of when you think of peace? Oh, world peace. Like there's no war. So it's the absence of war. Think about peace in your home. Oh, there's no conflict between me and my spouse or the kids and all that kind of stuff. It's absence of conflict. It's absence of bad circumstances. It's absence of the, the, the stuff you don't want happening. It's not there. Then you're at peace. It's a very negative view because you've got to take something away. Negative view of peace. It's not what Jesus is talking about. When Jesus talks about peace, it's something that he gives. It's him. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 14 says that he is our peace. The kind of peace that God talks about is a peace that we can have regardless of circumstances. It's an inner rest of soul that we have in our hearts with God, with others, regardless of what's happening around us. It's the kind of peace that only Jesus can deliver. It's the kind of peace that only he can promise. It's the kind of peace that he purchased through the cross for you and for me. It's the very peace that we're to take to other people as we preach the gospel of peace, peace with God, peace in our own lives, peace with the world around us because we've been restored to him, reconciled to him, the creator of the universe who longs to have a relationship with us and what he did on the cross purchases that peace. And he promises that peace. And sometimes you might hear people like late night TV preachers or whatever and say, if you just had enough faith and you'd have this kind of peace because then all the circumstances in your life, they'd get fixed. How ridiculous is that? One, show me one person that's happened for. Two, go preach that in a third world country. Three, it's not what the Bible says. Look at what Jesus is doing in this situation. In John chapter 13 and verse 1, it says he knew his hour had come. He knew that he would be betrayed by one of those guys that night. He knew that the next day he'd be executed. And in the midst of that context, he promises peace. 
Really? So we're talking about a different kind of peace. In fact, he promises peace when he guarantees trouble. He promises you, you're going to go through bad stuff. There will be hurricanes. People will commit murder. There will be rapes. There will be abuse. And in that stuff, I give you peace. John chapter 16, verse 33. Same conversation. Look at what Jesus says there. I tell you these things that you may have peace. Because you have that peace in me. In this world, you will have trouble. They hated me. They're going to hate you if you follow me. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. Talk about control. He hasn't died on the cross yet. He already knows he has the victory. We get excited about a team when they win a game. Jesus has won the ultimate victory over Satan himself. He's won the victory over everything that rules and reigns in the hearts of men and women all over this world that worship things other than him, things that drive their lives, that control their lives. He has overcome all that stuff. And he gives us peace. Do you know what? It doesn't mean that there won't be difficult stuff. In fact, sometimes he uses that difficult stuff to drive us to the place where we experience that peace, just like the disciples in our passage. It was C.S. Lewis that said that suffering is God's megaphone for a sleeping world. Sometimes it's the very thing that he uses to get our attention. People oftentimes ask the question, why is there suffering in the world? Why does the bad stuff happen? And I'm not going to answer all that in this message today, but I'll tell you this. God is so much bigger and more powerful than all that stuff, and even our questions. You look at what he does. He uses the most heinous sin in all of humanity to redeem us. Think about the cross. We oftentimes just think about what we get or what Jesus did. Think about it from the Jewish authorities' perspective. They killed God's son. They mocked him and drug him through the streets to humiliate him, He committed no crimes. They crucify him. God redeems the most heinous sin in all of humanity so he can redeem us. He uses suffering. He uses pain. He uses difficult stuff. And he will do whatever it takes in your life and in my life, through the cross, through our circumstances now, to get us to the place where we love him like he loves us. Where we would love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Where we would love other people the way that we naturally care about ourselves that we would actually look out for them, that it would change our mentality and how we live our lives, that we're not thinking about all of our needs and all of our lives, that we'd be thinking about those other people. He'll do whatever it takes. And he's done it in the lives of people. You ask people in our church that love Jesus, that have been through difficult times, and they'll tell you, the difficult times stink, no one wants to go through them, but God uses them to take them to a place they would never be at apart from that. You can ask Elizabeth McCoy, a lady who goes to our church, told me I could share her story. If you look at her story, it does not go like she would have written it when she was a little girl. She gets pregnant when she's 15 years old. Her parents up to that point had been very anti-abortion. But you find out what people believe, really, when they have to apply it to their lives. And they start pushing her towards getting an abortion. And when she decides that she won't, they excommunicate her from the family. They kick her out of the house. So she goes in and she moves in with her boyfriend. They get married. And he works a full-time job. He's not a bad guy. His name's Al. And when he gets home, Al's trying to make money for the family. He's got to make ends meet. He starts selling drugs. One day in their apartment complex, one of the other guys comes up to him and says, Al, you're, you're not a bad guy, but let me tell you what's going to happen. There's an undercover cop. He's coming through the apartment complex. He's going to try and buy drugs from you. You're going to go to jail. And that night, he sat down in their apartment with them, told them about how Jesus Christ had paid for all their sins, how he loved them so much. He did whatever it took to reach them so they could have a relationship with God. But they had to turn from their sin and turn to Jesus. And Elizabeth will tell you, right then, at that, that moment when he shared that with us, we repented. We repented the stuff from our past. We repented from selling the drugs. We repented and we turned and we surrendered our lives to Jesus Christ. And they trusted Jesus as their Savior. Amen? Isn't that exciting? That is great stuff. And then everything got good in their life, right? 
And everything went really smooth. Because now they've surrendered their lives to Jesus. They turned from the sin and now everything works out, right? It did for a few years. And they got to the place, they got on their feet, they were able to buy a home, they were having their third baby. And then Al started to get these pains that he couldn't describe. They were really painful pains. And it, what he had was a disease where his body was eating his own muscle tissue. And it was debilitating and incredibly painful. And for 18 months, he was in and out of the hospital with this disease. And Elizabeth, this week, she's telling the story, details I didn't even know until this week. I've heard her share the story before, but she talked about when they came to get him with the ambulance from the house. He's grabbing pictures of his kids off the walls, just holding them on his chest. He's realizing what's happening in his life. He gets so sick after 18 months, they have to put him on a ventilator. I don't know if you've done the hospital thing. That's really bad. So he can't talk to his family anymore. After six weeks of that, Elizabeth, she's 23 years old. She's got three kids. The house is being foreclosed on. She gets a call. And the call is, we've done everything we can do. We need you to make some decisions. So now she has to make some decisions on whether to tell them to stop with this ventilator and this other stuff. And they're believing God that he's going to heal them. And, and they're praying that God will heal this man. And they're surrendered to Jesus, and they've turned from their sin, and they're doing the right stuff. And she comes to the conclusion that there's nothing I can do that's going to stop God from doing a miracle. And so she tells them, you can stop. And they stop the machines, and he dies. And now she's got to go tell her three kids. As a 23-year-old mom, she goes to her oldest son, Jalen and says that daddy's gone and then Jalen says but mommy we prayed why we prayed so what do you say in that moment because you don't know I don't know she certainly didn't know what was God doing there and she'll tell you at that moment she felt like God pulled the rug out from underneath her and she was going to a church that taught, if you believe enough, bad stuff won't happen. Do you know what happens to you when bad stuff happens? They don't want you around. It's like that's contagious stuff. And so she gets away from church for a little while. She comes to Southbridge. She starts hearing about how God works and realizes she hasn't been trusting God. And gets to a newer, deeper place than she's ever been in a relationship with Jesus and experiences his peace. You can ask her about her story. Ask her if God uses those difficult circumstances to show his real peace. In spite of this stuff. Let me ask you something. Would you pray with me over this next five weeks that God would do whatever it takes in our lives to get us to know his peace? I read a blogger this week, a Desiring God blog. If you ever look at that, uh, his name was John Bloom, I think it was, and he was talking about a celebrity who was doing an interview, and apparently she knew Jesus, and she, they were asking her questions about her faith, and she said, I never pray for patience. Because if I pray for patience, then I know God will give it to me. And you know what that means, right? You don't get zapped with patience. <laughs> You've got to go through circumstances that are going to cause you to have patience. And he was commenting on that, and he said, she's right. God does answer that prayer. But here's the thing. We should pray it. We should still pray it. And would you pray, God, will you do whatever it takes? Not just give me patience. Give me your peace. God, you do whatever it takes to have me love you with the depth you want me to love you, would you pray? I dare you to pray. God, would you do whatever it takes to make me love people the way you love people? Would you pray that prayer? That's a bold prayer. Can you pray that for the next five weeks with me? You do whatever it takes in my life, in my family, in my business, at my job, at home, whatever it is, wherever your spots are at, to make me love people the way that you love people. Because I know one thing. I have no idea how he'll do it. But I know he'll do it. He'll do whatever it takes to get you to that place. That's what he shows the disciples in this passage. Peace.
be with you. And look at the next verse. After he said this, he showed him his hands and his side. It's as if he was saying to them, I've done whatever it takes to purchase your peace. You've got questions? I'm not a body double. Look at this. There's other people that have been crucified. You can see the scars in their hands. If they rose from the dead, look at my side. That didn't happen to everybody. It's me. I'm here for you because I love you. If you were to ask Jesus, you know, I asked you at the beginning of the service, you know, one person that you love so much and $100,000 and all that question. If you were to ask Jesus, who was this person? Was in his mind? Do you know what will go through his mind? All the people he died for. That means you and me. He died for the world. And so he thinks about each one of us. And you know what? It cost him far more than $100,000. It cost him his life, and that's what he's showing them. He said, look, I, I, went, I gave my life while you were still sick with that disease called sin. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It cost more than $100,000. He gave his life for us, for you, for me. That's what he would do. He did whatever it takes, and that's what he's showing them. I'll do whatever it takes. I'll do whatever it takes so that you can know this gospel of peace. And you know what he's supposed to do with us? Send us out to share that. I love the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 52. Beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news. What is it they're preaching? Look at what it says. Who proclaim peace. Was that world peace? Like there's no more war. We're going to sign a peace treaty. No, he's talking about peace with God. Peace with each other. Peace with the world around you. That's the peace he's talking about. That's the mission we've been given. And in order for us to do that, it's going to take a change of mentality for most of us because most of us just think about us having peace. Even when we talk about the stuff we talked about this summer, supernatural, the fruit of the Spirit, that we'd have love, joy, peace. Remember, that fruit's not just for us to experience. It's because we're in a world that's hungry for that fruit. And they want to consume that. And so what happens for Christians with peace? Colossians chapter 3, verse 15, we're supposed to put on peace. We're supposed to let God's peace rule in our hearts and be thankful that you're one of the people that have the peace, but you're not done. Because now, how beautiful are the feet of him who shares that peace. You've got to be thinking about others. Which means not only a change of mentality for us, it means a change of pursuits. It means that we're going to need a change in the things that we pursue in life. And that's our second point. If you're going to have a whatever-it-takes mentality, it's going to mean for the majority of people, 99% of the people that are probably going to hear these words, it means you're going to have to change the things you pursue in life. And you think about your pursuits in life. Your job, why do you, why do you work your job? Why do you do that? And some people say, well, it provides for my family. That's not why you do it. Let's get to the core. Like, it's great that it provides for your family. There's probably a hundred other jobs that provide for your family, too, to meet your basic needs. But get this. When you lay in bed at night and you think about your job, you think about whether it satisfies you. Whether you feel significant because you do it. You're thinking about your job is for you. That's why you do your job. Your family, same type of thing. Your ministry, it's why you pick the church you pick, probably. What does it do for you? It's why we go to the places we go, do the things that we do. Every pursuit we have in life, for 99% of us, is about us. And Jesus is saying, your life is not about you. It's about them. That's why you're still here on this earth. And that's what he says in this passage. Just as the Father has sent me. How did the Father send him? Did Jesus come down here to like work a job and have a nice family and hopefully save up enough money to retire someday so he could walk along the beach and then die? No, he sent him here to die. But he didn't send him here to live a meaningless life and then die. That was all about him. He sent him here for you and for me. Jesus wasn't coming down here just to check this place out and see what it was like to stay a couple nights. He didn't just want to know what it felt like to die. He wanted to know you. And he wanted to know me. And so he sends him on a mission. And then he sends us on the same mission. It's interesting the disciples don't know this. 
Because Jesus has already prayed about this right in front of them in that conversation they had in John chapter 13 through 17. And John chapter 17, verse 3, says, This is eternal life, that they would know you, and they would know your son Jesus, whom you sent. And then he says in verse 4, I finished the work you sent me to do. Jesus did everything God the Father wanted him to do while he was here on earth. And then he prays in verse 18 that they would go out and do the same thing. As you sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world. You know what he told them in John chapter 14? You can read it on your own, verse 12. I'm going back to the Father. You're going to do greater things than I've done because I'm going to be with the Father. You're going to have the Spirit, the same Spirit that raises Jesus from the dead is going to be living inside of you. Is that true? I didn't ask you if you prayed a prayer. I didn't ask you if you walk an aisle. If you're a follower of Jesus, God's Spirit is living inside of you. You don't just gather together once a week for a Bible study. God's doing a work in you. And you know what I want you to do? I want you to go out and tell all nations, everywhere you go, wherever you live, about the things that I'm teaching you. Baptize them, not in your name, but in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, because he gets glory. That's how he says it in Matthew. You know how he says it in Mark? In Mark chapter 16, he says this, the good news will be preached to all nations, all of creation. I love how he says it in Luke. In Luke, he says it as an is. It will happen. The, the, repent, the message of repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached. The question is, will we be a part? See, it's so important, and he's so crystal clear. He prays it through the gospel. He lives it through the gospel. They don't get it. So at the end of every gospel, he says it. And then he tells them in Acts, right before he ascends into heaven, here, you're going to be my witnesses. You are going to do this. If you're my followers, you will do this. I'm going to give you power. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. And you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, all over the world. As you go, living your life, in the sphere of influence you come into contact with, Acts chapter 17, where you live and move and have your being, and he's speaking to us thousands of years later because he had it planned out for you thousands of years later that you would live here and now. He's prepared, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, good works for us to do, and he planned them before human history began. So he knew that you would live in the wealthiest country in the world at the wealthiest time in human history, believe it or not, even with the recessions and all those types of things, with more people in the world than have ever existed before, with your exact experiences coming from your background and having your training, he'd place you in your neighborhood and sit you in a seat in this room today. He had that all planned out. There's no mistake that you're here. There's no mistake that you're hearing these words right now. And do you know what the plan is for you? That you'd make disciples. So what will you do? And let me ask you this. Picture your person again. Son, daughter, Mom, dad, cousin, nephew, good friend, whoever it was that was the person that came to your mind that you love so dearly. Imagine they live in another city and they don't know Jesus. Wouldn't you hope that there was a church in that city that was willing to do whatever it takes to reach them for Jesus? And you know what? Our city is filled with those people that somebody else loves dearly. And they would love it if there was a church a body of believers that they connect with. They're not a part of the local body, but they're part of the bigger church that would do whatever it takes to reach their loved one, their mom, their dad, their son, their daughter that's here for college, that retired and moved here. There was a nasty divorce, and they needed a new start, and they came here. A job transferred them, and they're here now in our city. And they might not be your one, but they're somebody's one. And will we do whatever it takes to reach them for Jesus Christ? And that means also... Not just will we spend time doing it, not just will we use our talents to do it, but it means money. I'm going to talk about money right now, and I'm going to just say this. If you're not a Christian, you've yet to place your faith in Jesus Christ. I do not want you to give any money. Okay, and not in the next five weeks, not today as you leave. I don't want you to drop it in the boxes. You'll see people doing that. Don't do that. Because I wouldn't want you to think 
for one second that somehow you doing that makes you right with God or gives you some special blessing from him. All you need is Jesus Christ to be your savior. That's the decision I want you to make. But if you are a Christian, I am talking to you. And unashamedly, I talk to you about money. And let me tell you why, because Jesus wasn't ashamed to talk about it. He said this, wherever you put your money, that's where your heart goes. Not where your heart is, your money will follow. Is wherever you put your money, that's where your heart goes. Will you invest your money for the kingdom to reach lost people? Do you love people? Do you love him? Then that's what he says. That's what he says. You can talk to him about it. In fact, you know what else he says in Luke 16? You're supposed to use your money to make friends. (laughs) Not this verse. It's before this verse. Uh, You hear that? Think about that. You're supposed to use your money to make friends? That sounds like wrong. That sounds like a scheme or something. (laughs) Don't talk to me about it. Jesus said it, Luke chapter 16. Go look it up. But he also says, the verse they just had up, we can pop that back up. He says, if you've not been, not been faithful, trustworthy in handling money, worldly wealth, who will trust you with the souls that I've died for? That's what true riches are. Who will trust you with changed lives? If I can't even trust you with money, like in perspective, what that is. But do you see how this needs a different mentality and a different pursuit for us? Some of us, that's the pursuit. It's money. And the mentality is we do what we think will make us happy and satisfied, and we haven't found our satisfaction in Jesus Christ. And now wanting to give that away to other people. God, do whatever it takes in our hearts to get us to that place. But what we're talking about in reaching this city, it's going to cost money. The building that you saw some pictures of, I just got a glimpse of at the beginning of this service, we believe that's going to be about a $7 million project with the land and the facility and all those types of things. And that sounds like a lot of money. Now, thinking about what that's going to be, uh, the ministry that we can have from that place, it's going to be incredible investment for the kingdom. It's not just money that's spent. We're going to be able to have 3,000 people in that facility in one day. That's amazing. 3,000 people exposed to the gospel in one day. Have a children's space. It would be our permanent children's space and equipping center to do the stuff that we're going to do all around the city and the stuff that we do during the week and things that we haven't been able to do because we haven't had a facility during the week, whether that's special events, outreach, different things. $7 million is still a lot of money. Let me put it in perspective. A lot of people think that because we meet here at a movie theater and we rent this place, you know, we're only here for a few hours a week. And because we have just an office space and a couple other things, that we don't spend hardly any money on facilities. And once we get to a building, then we're going to change our mentality because everything's going to be focused on the building, right? Because we're going to have this facility cost. Let me tell you something. You know what we pay on a monthly basis right now for the facilities we rent? SYU rents a facility to meet during the week. We've got office space and we've got this movie theater. It's enough money to pay a $3 million mortgage. A lot of people think just because we meet here and we set up, yeah, we don't have it very long. We don't get to use it very much. We're paying a $3 million mortgage. The problem is we're paying somebody else's mortgage. And so what we're asking for this project, we're asking God to do is we want to raise $4 million for the $7 million project. And do you know what? That would actually mean, if that happens, that could actually mean, I don't know the exact dollars will work out and all that stuff, that we spend less money on facility and have our own facility than we currently do. That would be amazing. That'd free us up to do even, think about that, not just having a facility, but we'd have more resources because you have more people too and more giving and all that other stuff to be able to, the impact that we could have in the city and we're talking about 10 times the impact we currently have, that would set us up in a great spot. But let me warn you with something. I've looked at the numbers. I've looked at what people give. I've looked at what was given to our past campaign. I've looked at what the cost is going to be. I've sat down with consultants, talked about these things. They tell us that based on what we have right now that we could raise about $1.5 to $1.7 million dollars. That's not even sniffing at $4 million. In fact, $4 million is more than double that. So we need God to do something where he's the only one that's going to be able to explain what happened, and he's going to have to do it in our hearts, and he's going to have to do something that I couldn't predict and couldn't guess. But I know this. It's going to take a whatever-it-takes kind of faith from us. 
Because his plan is this. He's got one plan to reach this world. It's the local church. It's you and it's me. That's plan A. There is no plan B. That's his plan. And it will happen. The question is, will we be a part of it? And you think about it. We'll do some crazy stuff for a football team. Like paint our bodies. Will we do whatever it takes to reach people for Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Father God, we come before you thankful that you're God and that we're not. That you know ways that are way higher than our ways and we surrender to you. And I pray on behalf of everyone who hears these words right now, will you do whatever it takes in our hearts? Shake us, move us, change us, focus us, whatever it is you want to do in our businesses, with our money, with our minds, with our time. Some of us, we just busy ourselves to death so that we don't have to deal with these things. God, will you, will you clear up our schedules? God, will you do whatever it takes in my heart and in my life and my family's life to reach you for you, to make me love people the way you do, to make me love you the way that you do? Will you do that in the hearts of each one of us that are believers? And Father, I pray for any that have yet to place their faith in your son, Jesus Christ. I pray that right now that they would contemplate their sin and their separation from you, that they can't possibly do anything, whether it's give money, show up at church, an event, do good deeds, be more moral, stop doing bad stuff. They can't do anything to make you love them that you already do. And that's why you sent your son. I just ask right now with everybody with their heads bowed and their eyes closed, if you're yet to place your faith in Jesus Christ, why wouldn't you do that today? Why not right now? Here's how you do it. I'll tell you the simple instructions. It's this. You acknowledge your sin before God. He already knows about it, and you already know about it. So just make it public. You say, God, I've sinned before you. It separates me from you. And if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you believe he died on the cross for your sins, will you trust him? Will you trust him to be your savior? Turn from the way you've been living your life and turn to him. And you can just pray a prayer that goes like this. You can just pray with me. Father, I acknowledge my sin. I believe your son Jesus died for my sins. And I want to trust him to be my savior right now. And if you just prayed that prayer, would you mark it on your connection card before you leave? And we've got people from our response team that will be down front. They would love to pray with you. They want to give you a gift. It's a Bible. The best gift we can give you, though, is that relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's why we're here. And that's what we've been talking about. It's really, we're doing this for you. We love you if you're yet to trust Jesus. And Father, I pray for those of us that are believers that please speak to our hearts, transform our minds, our lives, change our mentalities, change our pursuits, change everything about us so that we can be about you and about your glory and exist for the sake of other people so that you would be known, that the nations would know you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.